This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, January 13th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. With cryptocurrencies hitting all-time highs and now earning a frenzy in the marketplace, the regulators will not be far behind. Jerry Brito is executive director at Coin Center. We talked about what regulators might want and how cryptocurrency networks make it difficult, if not impossible, to regulate easily. Since Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Ripple, and a whole bunch of other coins, Dogecoin, have hit these really high market caps, almost unbelievable uh, amounts of money that is invested in these uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, there's renewed interest in regulation, but the underlying networks for these currencies, can a lot of them be regulated at all? Depends on what you mean by regulated, right? So, so no. I mean, if you think about it, these networks, in, in effect, are an attempt at regulation without uh, human institutions, right? So if you think about it, there is a limit on how many Bitcoins can be minted. And this is enforced not through some institution keeping a promise, but through the actual code uh, 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 and the cryptography itself. Um, so, so no, the, the, the network is regulated through the code. And because these are decentralized networks that do not have any sort of central um, uh, operator, there's no Bitcoin company, there's no Litecoin uh, building or president, right? But because there's no central uh, place where you can go and attach regulation, it's really difficult for a government to regulate the network per se. That said, there are many points of control, um, and these would be uh, the different service providers that pro you know, provide services to consumers on you know, using the networks. In a way, even the service providers, there are certain promises to customers that they can't credibly make just based on how these networks have arisen and, and what their natures are. I think that's right. I think if you uh, deposit um, Bitcoin with a uh, firm, uh, there are steps that you can take to verify that that firm indeed has those coins on hand for you. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can't have uh, uh, lending uh, that you typically see with a bank. So that is one, you know, one sort of promise that a, uh, a service provider can't make. There's one interesting element here, and I don't know if you can speak to it exactly. As the pace of trades in uh, Bitcoin specifically have gone up, that has stressed the Bitcoin network in a sense. And uh, well, I guess what I think about in the, in the banking sector is that if there's a run on the bank, uh, some banks might shut down for a, a short time period and say, no, you can't get your money out. Is it... Is that a natural, uh, uh, perhaps a side effect, if not an intended consequence of having a network that is suddenly very highly trafficked? Um, I, you know, I think that is uh, possible, but, I, but the solution to that is, again, because this technology uh, is peer-to-peer -peer and is cash-like, um, you don't have to use a bank, right? You can um, uh, keep the uh, coins that you own yourself, or you can keep them in, and I don't want to get too technical, but in a multi-sig uh, wallet where maybe... Um, the bank, as it were, has one of three keys, but you keep two. And while you can use the bank's, uh, let's say, anti-fraud or security services, um, you can always uh, resort to your two keys to have access to your coins in the event that the bank goes down. So um, I, I think the, the run on the bank problem, um, it still exists to the extent that you're relying on a third party to uh, uh, have custody of your funds. Um, uh, but I think you can avoid, you know, this technology allows you in a way that cash or, or I should say that digital money doesn't uh, to 
avoid having to trust one uh, party to keep your, your funds. So what what are your expectations, not to say what you uh, hope occurs with respect to uh, how the feds or other governments approach uh, cryptocurrency broadly as a regulatory issue? So one thing you have to keep in mind is that th- there's sort of this notion that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are an unregulated space. And you, you see that um, in headlines all the time, the unregulated cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Um, and that's just completely false. This is actually one of the more regulated um, technology uh, products uh, uh, in, in existence. Um, and this is because, again, not the technology itself, not the network, which you know is ones and zeros. You can't really regulate that. But the service providers, the exchanges, the wallet services, uh, et cetera, these folks are subject to uh, consumer protection laws in the states. They're subject to federal anti-money laundering uh, regulation. They're subject to securities regulation in some cases. Uh, if you are trading uh, with uh, leveraged, um, you know, with margin trading, you're going to be regulated by the CFTC as well. So um, these service providers are already regulated um, by any number of uh, federal and state regulators. And so what I would hope we see is, number one, um, more clarity. I think, in in some respects, um, uh, we could we could see we could use more clarity. Um, uh, how, uh, you know, what is the tax treatment of uh, cryptocurrency? Is some place where we I think we could use more more clarity. Um, the securities implications of new coins. I think would be something where we could use more clarity. But we really don't need new regulation because the regulations are kind of in place. I think in in other areas the regulations could be updated, um, uh, but I don't think that's difficult to do. There are uh, regulatory, the benefits of regulation that some people will point to. For example, if you keep your money in a bank, you've got the FDIC looking out for you and your deposits will be insured up to uh, some amount of money. If you lose all of your money in a in a stock deal in the stock market, there are some uh, measures of recourse for you. Um, but with the, the way these networks function, they function the way they function. And if something goes to zero, it's probably because the network wasn't very good or the currency itself wasn't designed very well. Well, so that's a risk that I don't, I don't think the government's really actually interested in protecting against, right? Um, I think what they're more interested in protecting against would be, let's say you put your money in a Bitcoin bank or an exchange or a wallet and somebody else you know, makes a promise to you and they take custody of your funds. At that point, they're acting, you know, as a bank, as you say, and in that case, they're going to, you know, have certain responsibilities to you. Um, and so, there, that's actually something that's regulated at the state level through uh, money transmission licensing is, is the name of, of, of the regulation uh, the, on point. And what and what we want to make sure we see is that this regulation is applied only to those. Uh, cryptocurrency firms that actually take custody of consumer funds. If a company takes custody of your funds, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else, um, I think we're going to see the state um, require a license uh, from that firm. And that, to get that license, you have to prove that you don't have a criminal background. You have, you're going to have to prove that you're well capitalized. You're going to have to post a bond, get insurance, et cetera. And I really don't think there's any, any getting around that. Um, what this technology allows you to do for the first time that wasn't possible with PayPal and Venmo before is that you can provide the same payments and bank-like services to customers without ever taking custody of their funds. And if you can do that, um, that means that you can't lose the money. You can't run away with the money. You can't be hacked and have the money stolen. And so in that case, you should not have to get a license. 
Um, and so that's what I think we, we'd like to see is uh, making sure that non-custodial service providers are never licensed. And I think what we'll see is increasingly that folks will rely on non-custodial service providers. And if you have custodial uh, service providers, um, look, it's, it's sort of, um, uh, you know, really can't um, challenge the fact that they're going to be treated like every other uh, bank and payment uh, uh, service and they're going to you know, have to get a license. And in that case, we just want to make sure that um, they're treated no differently um, than your typical uh, digital money uh, uh, firm. People who uh, got their first exposure, and I mean exposure in the financial sense to cryptocurrencies, uh, may be paying some taxes this year based upon uh, what the decisions that they've made in, in that market. Um, how does the IRS treat uh, cryptocurrency or at least Bitcoin and uh, how should they treat it? So in 2013, or actually in 2014, the IRS issued guidance that sort of said, you know, this is how we think of Bitcoin, and they think of Bitcoin as property. And really, they only had um, uh, really two choices. They could have treated it as currency, or they could have treated it as property. And the problem with treating it as currency, as far as they saw it, is um, this really isn't uh, a currency um, in the law, because a currency is something that is the coin of a, of, a, of a nation state, and this is not. So they treat it like property. And so that has uh, um, uh, some good and some bad. If you're you know, from an investor's perspective, um, it's good that they treat it as property because that means that you are going to be subject to capital gains um, uh, tax, uh, which is relatively lower than the alternative, which would have been um, sort of your marginal tax rate, um, which can be high you know, relative to capital gains. So this is good. It's subject to capital gains. On the flip side, what this means is, is that if you're trying to use it um, for day-to-day -day purchases, uh, every time that you dispose of Bitcoin because you buy a cup of coffee or you slice a pizza, that is a taxable event. You have um, uh, traded Bitcoin, and at that point, you have realized the gain, and it is your obligation to record, uh, report, and pay taxes on every one of those small transactions, even if it's for a dollar. Uh, and so that creates a lot of friction that um, maybe uh, it, you know sort of stops this from becoming a mainstream day-to-day -day payments uh, solution. Um, so what we'd like to see, and we're happy that Representative Polis, Representative Schweikert and Congress have introduced a bill to this effect, is the creation of a, a de minimis exemption uh, for uh, cryptocurrency t uh, uh, transactions under uh, $600. So what this would mean is if you're using it you know, to buy an airplane ticket or you're using it to buy a cup of coffee, um, you would uh, not have to keep track of those transactions. You would not have to owe any tax. However, if you are uh, buying and selling Bitcoin as an investment and you're buying you know, $10,000 at a time and selling $10,000 at a time, uh, you would owe capital gains taxes on those. So it's the difference essentially between a, being a person who sells a gun to, uh, and being a gun dealer. You know, uh, I hadn't heard it uh, put that way before, but that could be an analogy. I think a more on-point analogy would be uh, foreign currency. Um, so uh, it used to be the case, I mean, so today if you are a foreign, foreign currency uh, trader and you buy and sell euros and yen in order to make a profit, um, you owe capital gains tax on that. And it used to be the case that um, there was no distinction between that person and somebody who went to Paris uh, on vacation and bought some euros and while they were in France and bought a baguette, um, they owed taxes because the euro had risen in value relative to the dollar. And of course, you know, nobody paid those taxes because nobody was even aware that they needed to do that. And of course, you can't have a law that you know everybody completely disregards. So Congress in the 90s created a de minimis exemption 
for personal uses of foreign currency. So, you know, there is an exemption for that. And so what we're asking for is essentially the same type of exemption for cryptocurrency. All right. So what do you expect uh, this year to hold for cryptocurrency? I know this isn't specifically your area, but please, please pontificate for me <laughs> with respect to uh, what you think is going to be uh, 2018's uh, year with respect to cryptocurrency. I think um, we'll see a lot more interest from uh, Congress and uh, relevant agencies. And so what that will probably mean in Congress will be uh, probably hearings, um, uh, and these will probably be sort of information gathering. They've had these hearings before, and so I think we'll see them again. I don't think they're very specific um, to anything in particular. Um, I think um, uh, folks in government are concerned about um, the illicit uses of cryptocurrency, and so we may see... Um, uh, bills that um, seek to, again, gather information and fund programs related to criminal and terrorist use of cryptocurrencies. I don't think there are going to be um, really any restrictions, new, you know, new restrictions imposed, uh, uh, but I think you know, we'll just see more, more learning uh, from the government. I think what we'll also see um, is more uh, enforcement actions from the Securities and Exchange Commission related to what are known as ICOs or initial coin offerings. And this is sort of an esoteric thing, uh, but it has to do with uh, when you have somebody create a new coin um, and then they want to um, uh, offer that coin uh, before they've created the network, right? So essentially you're trying to finance the creation of a network by promising future tokens that will live on that network. Um, that has all kinds of securities implications, and I think uh, the way the SEC is uh, um, giving uh, folks more clarity about how it sees that is through enforcement, um, which actually, you know, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, folks generally have a good idea of how to avoid securities questions. Um, it's just on the on the margins where there are questions, and I think sort of in a, in a dare I say, it, in a common law approach, um, the SEC is going to be... Um, bringing more clarity through enforcement actions. Now, you mentioned uh, cryptocurrency being used in illicit uh, transactions and uh, the government attempts to sort of crack down or be more aware of, of, of the, the scale of that kind of activity. But, you know, nothing beats a $100 bill for illicit transactions. I think that's right. Um, you know, last year, um, uh, Her Majesty's Treasury in the UK uh, uh, published their annual report on money laundering and, um, uh, and illicit uses of money. And they ranked um, all of the vectors that terrorists and criminals use to uh, move funds and launder money. And number one on that list was uh, cash, followed by banks. Um, and you know, it went down the line through things like prepaid cards and money orders. And uh, digital currency, I think, was like number 100 on the list. Jerry Brito is executive director at Coin Center. Over the holiday season, we asked you, our listeners, to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast. So to you, Marty from Pennsylvania, thank you so much for your patron-level support of Cato. It's support like yours that keeps us in the business of promoting liberty. And as always, thank you for listening. 